Hi, and welcome to Energy News Bulletin, Australasia's most comprehensive podcast covering oil and gas and new energy markets, brought to you by Aspermont Limited. In this podcast, we look at Invictus Energy, listed on the ASX, trading under the ticker IVZ. Invictus Energy might be headquartered in Perth, Western Australia, but its asset focus is in sub-Saharan regions of Africa, in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe holds some of the world's largest coal reserves, but the nation has a deepening electricity crisis. Power cuts plague Southern Africa, and since his appointment last year, Zimbabwe's Energy and Power Development Minister, Fortune Chazi, has been working with Invictus Energy to find a solution. From a broader perspective, South Africa too is also facing dire energy supply shortfalls. But this could change, largely due to Invictus Energy. It holds a swathe of acreage across the Kabora-Basa Basin. This acreage is estimated to hold more than 9 trillion cubic feet of gas, which, once developed, could hold the answer to Southern Africa's power problems. I'm joined today by Invictus Energy Managing Director Scott McMillan. Scott, hi. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Scott, you're the founder and managing director of Invictus. You yourself have decades of experience in the resources industry. What was it that attracted you to the Kaborabasa Basin? Uh, Paul, I'm a reservoir engineer by background, and uh, I've worked for companies such as Woodside, Armour Energy, and uh, most recently at AWE, and that's in the exploration, appraisal, development, production, and also commercial aspects of the business. I've been fortunate enough to work on some of Australia's largest offshore and onshore oil and gas developments. And prior to Invictus, I was in charge of the Whitesear gas field, yeah. uh, and that's been the largest onshore gas discovery in Australia in the last 40 years. Huge. So we worked up that development and ultimately it was taken over by Mitsui and that was because a, a resource such as the size of whites is pretty strategic. Yeah. From a Zimbabwean point of view, I'm from Zimbabwe as you can probably tell from my <laughs> accent. Um, my family has a long history there yeah. uh, and I'm intimately familiar with the, the jurisdiction and, and the business environment over there. The country hasn't really been viewed as an ENP jurisdiction for the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Um, and that's in spite of all the activity going around in the in the neighboring countries, Mozambique, South Africa, and Namibia have all had fits and starts of, of exploration activity. But Zimbabwe's missed out on that largely because of the political environment that was present during the uh, Mugabe era, Yeah, particularly in the latter half, which made it uninvestable. Coupled with its relatively unknown geopotential, it means it hasn't been really on, on people's radars. However, I came across the Kaborabasa project that we now have uh, nearly 10 years ago. I was actually looking for a coal bed methane project. It's got established coal bed methane resources there and uh, very, very low risk in terms of its geological side for coal bed methane. But when I came across this this conventional mm. acreage that, that Mobile had once explored throughout Zimbabwe and Zambia, saw it in a different light. So Mobile had had been in the country in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. They did a comprehensive exploration program. They uh, spent nearly $30 million in today's money acquiring geochemical, gravity, aeromagnetic, uh, and seismic data. At the end of their evaluation, they concluded it was more likely to be gas-prone rather yeah. than, than oil-prone. And you know, back in the early 90s, there was no structured market for gas in the region. You had some very large onshore discoveries in Mozambique that still hadn't been monetized by then, which had been discovered in the late 50s, early 60s. And so Mobile saw very little rationale for trying to find even more gas. So they 
ended up relinquishing the acreage. You know, around that time, you had a lot of the majors exploring in that part of the world. In Shell and Kenya, you had BP in Tanzania. And with an oil price crash at the same time, a lot of those mm. frontier jurisdictions ended up being relinquished and the countries retreated to their home bases, a lot like you've seen in the last three cycles that we've had. Yeah. Those other countries ended up promoting their acreage subsequently when the industry picked up again and the oil price stabilized. Yeah. That was picked up by a lot of junior companies, you know, the Hardman Resources, the Tullos, Africa Energy. Zimbabwe, however, has abundant mineral resources and didn't think that there would be any interest in gas again and probably marketed their mineral potential ahead of their oil and gas potential. Mm. A lot of those other countries didn't have any other choice because that was they didn't have the mineral wealth that, that Zimbabwe has. And so for those reasons, it sort of stayed under wraps. Yeah. By the time I looked at it, um, this was sort of uh, 15 years after Mobile had left, yeah. the dynamics had started to change. So you you, you now had Pandentamani, those onshore fields in Mozambique that have now been developed. Yeah and a burgeoning market for gas in the region and different ways to monetize it. You know, you've got the, the Southern Africa power pool for gas to power. You've got existing gas users there now. So the energy dynamics have changed and and also, more importantly, the country dynamics have changed as mm. well. You know, with the new government coming in, open for business again, changed a number of the prohibitive and draconian investment laws that were present. And so now you've got both of those factors, which are good geopotential and decent above ground conditions, which can now facilitate exploration again. I really like the story of mobile. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because from an outsider's point of view, the fact that mobile had been there, they'd already conducted seismic, but nothing really came of it. And that was quite a win for Invictus Energy. Yeah, that's right. And and as I said, when I first came across this, I really liked it because a lot of the technical aspects of this had been de-risked through yeah. mobile's work. And fortunately, you know, you can do a lot worse than, than going into old mobile uh, acreage that they've explored. They do yeah. a, a very, very thorough job, collect great data sets, and they actually left a climate-controlled storage room that they built at the geological survey that was housing all of the um, the original field tape data, you know, yeah. the seismic um, gravity and, and aeromag. And that was on film. Yeah, so those are on those old um, yeah. <laughs> old 9 millimeter tapes like you have in the... Um, you know, I don't know if you remember back to your school days and the project, <laughs> yeah. projectors that uh, that recorded on those magnetic tapes. And uh, so we were able to go in there and digitize them and um, and gather the data off them and then apply new computing power and, and, and processing techniques which have advanced in the last 25 to 30 years since mm. mobile actually acquired the data. So it was a very, very low risk and low cost entry for us and that we benefited from mobile's previous campaign, which, which meant that, you know, it sort of overcame that jurisdictional uh, aspect of, mm. of Zimbabwe where we could go in, evaluate it for relatively low cost, add a lot of value through this work, and then uh, bring in a partner with us, which you would ordinarily have to do at a much earlier stage. Yeah. So we've been very fortunate that um, that Mobile left it in such good condition and did uh, a lot of the groundwork for us. Well, it shows how far, I guess, uh, oil and gas technology and, you know, science research has gone in the last 25 years. You've now analysed your acreage. It's certified uh, to have around 9 TCF of gas. Um, That's quite hard for those of us on the outside of industry um, perhaps to understand or quantify. Can you tell us just how big that is? Sure. So... uh, our prospective resource has been independently certified by both uh, GTEC and, yep. uh, and NSAR, Netherlands Sul and Associates, who are independent uh, resources evaluators. It's not just large, it's elephant scale. Yep. So so for those um, not familiar with that terminology, 
elephant scale is uh, our, our resources of 1 billion barrels of oil equivalent or more yeah. potential. So 9 TCF, to put that in perspective, it's about double the size of the Pluto gas field, yeah. offshore Western Australia. And uh, why it's here, the field that I mentioned earlier, uh, which has been the largest onshore gas discovery in Australia for 40 years, is just under 1 trillion cubic feet. Yeah. So it's nine times that it's size. It's nine times that size. <laughs> um, and, but not only is there a lot of gas, but also potentially a lot of liquid associated with it as well. So, yeah. so uh, uh, condensate, which is a light form of oil, and that's just under 300 million barrels of condensate as well. So to put that in perspective, the Dorado discovery that was mm. made by Santos and Carnarvon a couple of years ago in the Bidu Subbasin. That was the most exciting discovery and in, it is. It's in a, Western Australia. It's a, it's a fantastic discovery. That has been the largest oil discovery in Australia this century. Yeah. So we're dealing with something that is pretty substantial. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we're chasing uh, a pretty enormous target. And, and we can do that with one single well, yeah. which is pretty exciting. So your, your, your risk versus reward for going into a frontier jurisdiction that's undrilled. So this is wildcat territory. Yeah. You need to have those sorts of prizes in order to justify that risk. But yeah. because it's onshore, it's low cost. There's a lot of infrastructure in place that makes it a much, much easier proposition. Talk me through uh, Zimbabwe's energy situation as it is uh, currently. I've read reports that the nation suffers extensive blackouts for, for much of the day and that the government is working really hard to take the country into a new era of energy development. Can you paint us sort of a picture of, of what that looks like? Sure. So... The energy dynamic in the region is is quite interesting. You've got, um, and I'll talk about uh, not just Zimbabwe, but um, but sort of Southern Africa in mm. general. So in Zimbabwe, you've got a mix of hydroelectric power, which is about fifty percent of the generation, and coal yep. fired power. In South Africa, you've got about ninety percent coal fired power. In Zambia, you've got about ninety percent hydroelectric, and uh, in Tanzania, you've got a mix of hydroelectric and gas. It used to be coal and, and heavy fuel oil. So there is already a lot of renewable energy in the region, yeah. but a lot of this is affected by drought. Coupled with this, you've got a lot of aging coal-fired power, which was built 40, 50, 60 years ago, yeah. which is starting to get to the end of its useful life. What we're seeing now is a population that's increased, demand for electricity has increased, supply hasn't kept up, yeah. and coupled with, with the drought that is experienced relatively regularly, you end up having quite short supply of hydroelectric power. And so now it's it's gotten to a critical phase where it's actually hampering industrial development. Yeah. Um, you know, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, all have regular power cuts. And so if you're in business and in an industry trying to plan around these, whether you're a miner or, or a heavy industrial user, it's very, very difficult. Mm. Um, you know, we saw the effect that it had in South Australia with just a, yeah. a, a kind of one-off event. Uh, these are happening regularly in, yeah. in that part of the world. So power is a is a huge challenge. And you've got a lot of your larger industrial users now now searching for independent power producers to try and um, guarantee a regular and reliable as well as affordable source of electricity. And I guess that's where uh, your acreage could really firm up their their resources or, or supply. Yeah, that's right. And and I think now looking at gas to power, it's a very, very elegant solution, particularly mm. in this part of the world where you've got the Southern Africa power pool, which connects the electricity grid from Cape Town all the way through to the Congo. And so if you're anywhere along that line, you can export electricity to any other country within that region. You don't ha have to pipe the gas to site mm. to get it into the grid. Mm. You can, you've can you got a virtual pipeline that you can export molecules through. 
um, by generating electricity. And so you can supply power directly to South Africa, to Namibia, to Zambia, um, Botswana, uh, or from within Zimbabwe. And the spine of that grid actually runs through Zimbabwe and, and all that electricity trading is, is controlled in Harare, just down the road from our office there. So you're working with the government to find a solution. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the upstream side rather of the asset? Sure. So it is a frontier jurisdiction in, in oil and gas uh, sense. So to bring investment in requires two things. Firstly, you need encouraging geopotential to warrant the exploration side of things. And, and our work now, which is built on uh, what Mobile did, has, has revealed that. And, and obviously with the um, you know, sort of size of the prize that we've mm. been talking about. It's mm. it, it, it's obviously very enticing. Uh, the second thing is is having the legislation in place so that there's a framework that enables the development and commercialization of, of any discovery. Yeah. You know, oil and gas developments require hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of capital investment over the life cycle. And so you need a really robust framework to govern yeah. that. How quickly has the government moved? I mean, you've been given key project status by the government, which is a huge deal. Perhaps you can walk us through what that means, but also how quickly the government's been moving to open up its energy resources. Um, priority project status uh, is given to projects that have the potential to make a significant economic contribution to the country. And what that does is it provides you the relevant avenues to get any impediments or in, or any legislation that is needed to facilitate those investments fast-tracked. You know, for us, that includes legislation that we've been talking about, production sharing agreements. So we have to make sure that the legislation is compatible with the existing laws so that it stands up. And we've been working hard with the legal teams from the respective ministries of, of mines and energy. Often the monetization of gas is an issue in yeah. frontier jurisdictions uh, because you've got to try and create a market after you've made a discovery, and that takes a long, long time. You've yeah. also got uh, the pipeline uh, easement and access issues that you need to underpin in order to get your product to your customers. Yeah. And so what we've learned from uh, probably the Kenya and Uganda experience is that it's all well and good making these fantastic discoveries, mm. which are large and, and can change, but unless you can actually move your product to market, you know, no one gains any benefit. And, yeah. and we've seen the stasis. So so we've been working hard with um, with the legal teams over there to build these sort of provisions into the production um, sharing agreement, which have gone probably further than you see in most others. That makes sure that as soon as we make a discovery, we can begin the work to commercialize it so that the cycle times for from an investment perspective are, are much, much shorter. And that's what a lot of companies are looking for now rather than these long, long-dated uh, kind of capital payback scenarios. My guest today is Scott McMillan. He's the Managing Director of Invictus Energy, uh, listed on the ASX as IVZ. Obviously, as we record this, Scott, the world is going through an unprecedented uh, challenge, if you like. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has wrought havoc across international markets, not just here at home in Australia, but obviously around the world. What's your view on this and, and how has that impacted your project? Well, just for the industry in general, it's been a pretty tough time, yeah. you know, not only with the pandemic, but also the demand side decimation that we saw during the sort of peak of it a few months ago where the price of oil dropped dramatically. And that has had a very, very significant impact on companies, cash flows, budgets. And we've sort of seen a lot of cuts in industry as well as a pullback in activity. And generally speaking, Frontier exploration is discretionary spending. So those are often the things that are cut the quickest and, and, and the deepest. We ended up in a scenario where the potential parties that we're talking to asked for some additional time, 
for uh, for things to stabilize, which is completely understandable. And yeah, and now we've seen the the oil price stabilize over the last sort of six to eight weeks, and it's formed formed a, a, a relatively decent base. It still hasn't recovered to where it was uh, in the pre-pandemic levels, and might not do that for a while. Mm. But uh, stability provides you the you know the base that you need to to plan for yeah. the future. There, there was a period there over a couple of months where the sky was falling in, and it's <laughs> and and it becomes very very difficult to um, you know to plan for the future. You're 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 just trying to react rather than than look forward. Yeah. So it looks like we're through that period now, and and, and we've had um, actually a lot of pickup in activity over the last couple of months, and we're advancing pretty well now on our farm out. The interesting thing over the past couple of weeks has been both ANZ and NAB, two of Australia's biggest banks, have released their forecast of what the oil price is going to do, and they do see it stabilising mainly at the end of this year, which is probably going to work quite well for you. So have you seen any fall off or or pick up in, in that process with your joint venture partners? We had a couple of parties which you could probably classify as um, outside runners yeah. request some additional time, you know, sort of Q3 onwards before considering anything. But interestingly, even during probably the peak of what was going on, we had a couple of uh, regional independents come in and start evaluating the opportunity. I guess some of the smarter companies, mm. uh, if you can call them that, are kind of cyclical. Yeah. Uh, see this as an opportunity when asset prices are low, when service costs for things like drilling and seismic uh, are much lower compared to when the oil price is much, much higher. And so they see this as a chance where there's relatively sort of fewer number of competitors uh, and also much cheaper costs to enable to pick up assets like this. And what you find is that top quartile assets generally work through any price cycle. Mm. You see a lot of this, w- what's going on now, are companies shedding assets that are high cost, high break evens. Mm. But opportunities that are top quartile generally can't be bought. They've got to be found. Yeah. And so what we see is because we've got this material opportunity and ability to go in and get a basin scale position with a huge amount of upside and a relatively low entry cost, this asset fits that criteria. And so, you know, we're pretty happy where things are at. We're starting to close off that process and we hope to have some good news pretty soon. Well, judging by uh, both ANZ and NAB, they're looking at about an oil price of about $60 a barrel by you know the end of December. So hopefully the market does recover, and I'm sure there's plenty of confidence in your uh, market anyway uh, in Southern Africa. Let's talk about the farm out process, because you flagged that early on in the piece, that you wanted to have another partner join you to develop the asset. Majors, independents, juniors, are you able to shed any light on that? Yeah, sure. And, and, and maybe I'll just talk first about why we want to a partner, you know, we've got 80% equity in the asset. Uh, it's it's frontier. It's not without risk. You know, it is wildcat territory, as as I mentioned. So yeah. this is the sort of traditional path that a lot of juniors take down this road to identify acreage, uh, work it up, bring in a partner for the forward work, work program, which is what we're doing. So so because of the this asset type, it attracts the whole gamut of, of people. It's onshore, cheap entry cost, and high you know, high potential in terms of of large resource numbers. Mm. So it's able to move the needle for both super majors, you know, anything basically over 500 million barrels. Yeah. Um, that starts to whet the majors' appetite. Yeah. And, and this, you know, we're starting to get towards 2 billion barrels for this, of oil equivalent for this asset. So it's well and truly, uh, you know, big enough for the majors to get interested. Uh, as well as, you know, your mid-tier independents, juniors, uh, private equity firms, and that's open because it, it it is a much much cheaper entry because it's onshore. We're mm. not dealing in deep water. Yeah, you know a lot of the other times if if you do have an asset in deep water, it requires 
operators that you bring in with those skill sets that have the capability and track record to drill yeah. in deep water and develop assets in deep water. Onshore is a much, much easier yeah. uh, proposition. And so well, there's just far less infrastructure generally. <laughs> I mean, you don't need an FPSO or, 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 or a drilling rig out there uh, per se permanently. Yeah, that's right. And and you've also have the ability to to phase the development yeah. as well. You know, offshore you've you've got your your footprints for your platforms or, or APSOs yeah. that you've got to cater for that govern the size of your development for, for its entire field life, whereas onshore it can be building blocks and, and done in a, in a staged manner. So you're able to kind of stage your investment from a capital perspective and develop your asset as the market's develop and if you build it they will come we've yeah. seen it um you know we've seen it wherever you you've done that tanzania is a great example mm. uh bay and and songo songo started out as 20 million cubic feet per day gas to power developments that's now up at 250 million a day generating quite a significant amount of of gas to power it's been reticulated into dar salaam with industrial users now as well but if you were offshore you couldn't develop something like that no. until all of that had been developed whereas onshore you're able to phase it and build it to scale as as is required and as the market develops before we get on to i guess where your gas is going to go i'd like to just ask a couple of questions relating to the asset advantages that have attracted attracted your potential partners has there been anything in particular that has sort of really been the lag for uh, potential investors? I mean, you've mentioned large companies and small caps too, um, and investment funds. What is it about your asset that they've just gone, this is the one? It's because of a number of factors. Firstly, as I mentioned, onshore low-cost entry, we're dealing with onshore drilling costs versus deep-water drilling costs. Yeah. You know, so to drill a well to test something this size you're looking at you know 10 to 15 million dollars mm. to give you uh, an example uh, the Brule Potter discovery that was made in in South Africa by Tertel yeah. um, early last year they tried to drill this well in in 2014 the mid ocean conditions are pretty awful yeah. uh, they're some of the toughest in the world they they couldn't complete the well then yeah they came back last year with an upspec rig that they brought in uh, from the north sea and so that two, they spent two hundred million dollars <laughs> on the first attempt, and then they they spent um, one hundred and fifty million dollars uh, on the second time, and they've and they've made that discovery. Yeah, and that broad part of discovery, absolutely fantastic, um, at around four to five TCF and um, a few hundred million barrels of condensate. Yeah. So so if you're looking at risk, cost, reward, something mm-hmm. that you can drill for ten to fifteen million dollars to test something that's to double the size yeah. at 10% of the cost is a no-brainer. There's that aspect. The second thing is is the proximity to infrastructure to, to monetize it. All well and good being able to discover that sort of size resource, particularly mm. gas. Oil is much easier to monetize. You can get it to an international market and, and, and send it off to, to customers globally, whereas gas, you need either an LNG development where you're, again, shipping it off internationally, or you need a pretty large domestic or, or regional demand, and that's already existing. So there's established gas markets in Zimbabwe with mm. um, you know Sable Chemicals, one of the, the, the firms that we've signed a gas sale agreement with. They import gas by rail for their fertilizer manufacturing process, which is hugely expensive, mm. and so they've been looking for a, a source of gas for a long time. You've got gas to power, as I mentioned before, that you can monetize the electricity grid there anywhere in Southern Africa. You've got small-scale LNG to truck it off to um, your off-grid miners mm. uh, that have that burn diesel for, yep. their, for their operations. And 
you've got a very large existing gas uh, consumption center in, in South Africa that's been uh, developed out of those onshore Pandantamane fields that, that I talked about earlier yeah. uh, that have finally been developed, which is around 500 million cubic feet a day. So that's about half of what Western Australia consumes. Yeah. Those fields now are in decline. By 2023, they're off plateau. And so there's a good window at the moment now to fulfill that supply shortfall. Consumption's growing in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, there've been a couple of studies, Power Africa uh, put out a study that, that estimate that the shortfall uh, mm. of supply in South Africa is gonna be around 1 billion cubic feet a day wow. from, from, okay. from 2030, which is about equivalent to the entire East Coast demand. Yeah. So, We've seen what the gas shortages in, in on the East Coast have done to prices there. South Africa already has premium pricing at around six to eight US dollars per gigajoule. And so you've got a large market, but also a premium price market that you mm. can that you can access. Along with that, you've also got very, very good fiscal terms. So that's that's also important. You need to know as a company when you're investing ultimately what your return is going to be, because yeah. you've got to compare it against where else you can invest across the world because it is a global industry that that is a competition for capital. Yeah. You know, we've also got an excellent relationship with government. Quite often you're in places where it's quite an antagonistic relationship between uh, resource companies and, and, and governments. I think it's like that in any sort of wildcat territory to some extent, isn't it? It is. It is. But um, I, I think the government in Zimbabwe, having been through a period uh, yeah. where there hasn't been much foreign investment over the last 20 years, have now decided that they need to bring in foreign direct investment back into the country to get the economy back on its feet. Yeah. It's got a long established history as as a mining jurisdiction, you know, over over a hundred years. So they're well res- they're well versed in the resources sector and and, and and what's required there. And in the mines minister, Winston Chitando, he was running one of the big platinum miners in the country. Yeah, uh, and has been brought in to the ministry. Uh, you know, to help government spur that investment. So it's I call him a, a, a poacher turned gamekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> but he understands what's required from an investment point of view yeah. for companies to to you know to commit money. Yeah. And 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 so it's great to have a government now that's supportive of investment and also someone that's in the hot seat that actually understands what's required from an industry point of view. And I guess probably lastly, uh, again, is the infrastructure in place. So, mm. you know, we've got a tarred road that goes all the way into the basin. Yeah. So you don't have to build a giant long road yourself. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, so quite often, you know, particularly in the interior of Africa, yeah. um, you don't often get um, any infrastructure, never mind good infrastructure. Yeah. So, you know, we're very lucky. That tide road takes us all the way to Byra, deep water port in, in Mozambique. Okay. So we can get equipment in and out. We can get product in and out. Yeah. Um, and, and the majority of that highway actually forms part of one of the busiest uh, trade routes in uh, in Africa, which is called the Byra Corridor. Yeah. And that's used to move bulk commodities from Zambia, all the copper that gets mined there, uh, cobalt from the DRC, uh, as well as Botswana, and Malawi as well. It's a very well-established road network that's in very, very good condition. You know, and and, and there's also an existing pipeline yeah. uh, as well. So that runs from Harare to Baira. That currently imports liquid products from, from Baira into Harare. That's used as then a, a distribution center for the rest of those those other countries yeah. uh, as well for fuel as well as local domestic consumption. So you've got a, a secured pipeline route. So if you're not going to repurpose that pipeline, you've got one, you've got a, an easement and a route next to it, which yeah. is... Often the hardest thing when it comes to, to pipelines yeah. is, is securing a route and compensating landowners mm. and, and, and getting um, the agreements and surveying it and everything else. So that really shortcuts a lot of that that, that time 
um, you know, when we were looking at a, at a at an export scenario and, and, and generating foreign currency and for the country. So all of these things combined, yeah. um, you know, make it a really attractive opportunity for for a range of uh, of companies because of the scale of it, the entry cost, the monetization options, and also. Uh, the premium pricing. Late last year, Invictus signed an agreement with uh, Tatanga Energy to jointly investigate commercial viability of supplying gas from the Kaborabasa project to a proposed gas-to-power plant um, that would then supply electricity for the national grid. How's that progressed? Yeah, that's progressing really well. We've yep. um, already identified some preliminary project sites. And, you know, fortunately, we're only around 100 kilometres from three major interconnectors for the Southern Africa power pool. So from any of those sites, we connect into a grid that can export electricity from Cape Town through to the Congo. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a really elegant near-term solution. Gas to power is very, very quick to, you know, in, in, in terms of its development timeframe. Coal-fired power, you're looking at, you know, four to eight years sometimes. Well, yeah, it takes ages to develop coal-powered stations, doesn't it? Um, they're difficult to finance, yeah. uh, you know, particularly at the moment where, where a lot of um, a lot of banks and, and funders are, are walking away from coal. Yeah. I've, uh, personally, I've got I've got nothing against it. Yeah. But... Um, it's just gas, a harder market. It, it's, a much, it's a much harder market. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the proposed coal-fired power stations in the region are actually struggling yeah. to, to attract finance, whereas gas to power is, is really in, in high demand and, and very in vogue. And that's for a number of reasons. It's it's scalable. Yeah. Um, you know, nowadays you're not looking at bespoke technology. It's mm. off the shelf. From six months in ordering a gas engine generator or turbine, you can have that delivered to yeah. site and, and, and you're ready and going and you can uh, bolt it on and increase it as required. Yeah. Whereas coal, you know, you're looking at a minimum sort of size of four to five hundred megawatts. Yeah. Um, securing the offtake agreements in place for that and the financing and everything else. So, so this um, this venture that uh, we propose with Tatanga has got that sort of stage component to it, mm. um, and will enable us, you know, to monetize that pretty quickly because of um, the proximity to the grid, uh, and also, you know, some of the partners that they're bringing in. Who are the manufacturers of of um, of these kind of facilities as well? So let's look at where you need to go to get there. I guess um, what are the next few steps for Invictus in in bringing this asset into development? I mean, it's still I, I'm not going to say early days because it isn't, um, but there's still a lot of work that needs to to happen. Yeah, there is. There's um, you know we're we're hoping to conclude that farm out process and bring in a partner uh, very shortly. We've got our ER our environmental impact assessment, which uh, should be approved imminently. Yeah. Um, there, there, there were a couple of delays with, with COVID and everything else uh, going on and preventing uh, the agency from getting out into the project site. Once that's done, we can start the detailed drill design uh, and, and our field work that's required. We'll probably acquire some infill seismic as well just to refine the, the subsurface drilling targets uh, and then drill a high impact basin opening well, yeah. uh, hopefully two. Yeah and uh, prove up the resource and then we're off to the races. What's the cost involved in drilling those first two wells? I mean, obviously one, but hopefully two. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at uh, a couple of different targets. Yeah. Uh, Imzorbani, obviously the big one that, that, that we've been talking yeah. about. Uh, and that will, uh, you know, we've got a range of estimates there, which which sort of run from about 8 million up to 16 million with a median price of about uh, 12.5. Uh, million US, and then there are some shallower targets as well uh, in, in in some separate prospects that we're looking at, which will in the sort of six to eight million range. So it's um, 
you know, very manageable compared to, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but in oil and gas uh, It's terms, not a lot of money. It's, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's not a lot of money. When you've so, got Santos drilling a well for about $100 million in the in, in the Northern Territory, it's um, yeah. it's a little bit different, isn't so it? So this is pretty mm. modest, but, you know, by, by industry standards. Yeah. So. I noted you also had a uh, cash raise earlier this week or last week, raised about half a million bucks. We've brought in um, some local institutional investment from Zimbabwe yeah. uh, called Mangwana Opportunities. It's very difficult in Zimbabwe to get exposure to something like this. There mm. aren't any any um, listed oil and gas companies or any other oil and gas companies active in, in, in the country. We, we brought them in for, for a number of reasons. Mm. Um, one, I think it's great to have local institutional ownership, uh, yeah. You know, particularly because our, our company is really focused on, on Zimbabwe at the moment. Yeah. And... There's probably the perception that we're a foreign-owned company, even yeah. though we've got you know very strong Zimbabwean roots. Being Zimbabwean myself, Brent Barber, our country manager, yeah, um, you know, ran Mobile's exploration program there, and actually did a lot of the early work to get them involved. Yeah, um, and he lives there and runs a, runs a project for us there on the ground. So you know, we're sort of sometimes unfairly labelled as a as a foreign company. Yeah, and, you know, we we we're, we're obviously listed here and, and and headquartered there, but got strong Zimbabwean roots. So. It's great to have then some more local ownership yeah. uh, involved. And then also, you know, Mangwana have got some very, very high caliber people in their fund, particularly at a time like this where we don't have the ability to travel and, and help move things along. Uh, you know, a guy like Joe, Joe Matizo, who's one of the most senior businessmen in the country, he's able to help us get things done there. So when are you looking to spud? I mean, that's the big question that I'm sure a lot of people have in their minds. That is, yeah. So it, it, it's been a little tricky to get definitive timelines at the moment. The borders yeah. are shut uh, in a lot of countries and, and we've got to move equipment in from, from outside of Zimbabwe. Our best estimate at this uh, time is probably towards the end of, of next year before the rainy season or else uh, very early the following year. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and then it, it'll be a pretty exciting but also nerve-wracking time. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it doesn't, probably doesn't get uh, get more exciting than Frontier Wildcat Drilling. So, well, one of the one of the catalysts, or one of the the the, the way that you calibrate um, a lot of projects, is often by a chance of success. Yeah. What's your chance of success? Do you know for your first well? Yeah. So, if you're looking at individual horizons, yeah, uh, within them, it's um, you know probably around that ten to fifteen percent mark. Yeah. But because we're chasing a stack target, yeah, um, that greatly increases your your chances of success because you've got multiple combinations of reservoir, uh, trap and seal. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're looking at these stack targets, then you tend to get more towards a sort of 35% range. That's remarkably high. I mean, people, sometimes our listeners may not know, but um, anything above 30% is often, you know, quite remarkable in the oil and gas industry. um, And they don't necessarily understand that. No, I think, and I think particularly... That's been lost over the last um, last ten years or so with the shale revolution, where yeah. where where people kind of look at geological risk um, and 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 they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And because you've had hundreds of thousands of wells drilled in the U.S. and the geology is very very well known, there's very uh, little risk. Mm. But the only way to make um, you know transformative discoveries is to go into these. Uh, Undrilled uh, basins, which you know, if you if you're the first first entry into them, you generally secure the best areas and and the biggest 
uh, targets, yeah. which is what we've done. The, the concept of this geological risk is a method that we use, you know, to estimate what the chance of success. In reality, though, it's either there or it's not. Yeah. You know, in, in spite of how well, you know, because you, your percentage is always wrong. Yeah. If you, if you make a discovery, it's actually one. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, it's zero. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just, it, it's it's probably better used as a as a qualitative tool to rank your prospect inventory yeah. rather than your absolute chance of, of, of success. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you're prepared to take the risk, I think for this opportunity it's it's more than warranted because yeah. of the size of the prize. We've we've got all the evidence of the petroleum system there that we've yeah. sampled from outcrop, you know, all the all the geochem work we've done, all the basin modeling work that we've done, uh, and the evidence that we see on seismic from um, you know, from AVO response, et cetera, you've got to do it. Mm. And this target is so big that if 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 it had been anywhere else in the world over the last 20 years, it would have been drilled already. Yeah. But it has been locked away um, and, and out of reach from, from industry. And, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to go in and, and because of our, you know, our roots, been able to to secure it first and, and now kind of bring it to light in mm. the industry. And, and I think a lot of people initially when you talk to them about the size of it are really surprised and they see that massive whopping great, great big structure <laughs> on that seismic line and that and they're like well why hasn't this been drilled and it's, yeah. and it's because not, not not for geological reasons but more for political and above ground reasons and yeah. it's been that's been, well, locked, locked, been locked out yeah exactly for, for a long time mm. but it you know but if you're prepared to do it you can go and make these transformative discoveries you know hardman mm. in mauritania and uh, uganda Tullo in, in Uganda and Kenya, you've had Cosmos, you know, even here in in, um, in Western Australia with, with Carnarvon in, in, in the Bidu, you know, that, that was a, uh, a pretty underexplored basin and everyone had written it off. Yeah. And, um, you know, with the work they did with, with, with de-risking it and, and drilling a couple of wells, they've ended up making this fantastic discovery. And then sometimes even in, in older basins, with, yeah. you know, people have these preconceived notions about what your, you know, what your sort of um, economic basement is. And everyone in the Perth Basin said, you know, below 3,000 meters, don't bother. Yeah. And we've had whites here and now West Eregala, which, mm. which their is- Their wells drilled to what, 5,000 meters? Yeah. yeah. And, they're, and, they're, and they're probably the best reservoirs in, in Australia on yeah. shore by daylight. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your four that I was fortunate enough to be involved with floated 90 million cubic feet a day. Yeah. And that was, you know, barely broke a sweat. So <laughs> it's, um, you know, so you can you can go into these um, in, into these kind of areas, either frontier basins that, mm. that, that that haven't been explored or been lightly explored, or into older basins which haven't properly been explored or, or have been closed off to sort of new ideas, mm. and make these huge discoveries. Yeah, and and you know that's that's what Invictus is about. You know, we're not looking to you know go into unconventionals and be workmanlike and 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 chase these small targets. We're going after something which will be company changing, mm. and and also nation changing mm. if it if it comes in. So we're we're very excited and, and looking forward to the forward work program. We've talked about you know Dorado and Waits here and all of these different things. Both the Dorado discovery and Waits here resulted in takeovers and you know people's market caps. I mean you look at Carnarvon Petroleum, this m- micro company once upon a time, suddenly having a market cap you know eighteen times the size of it. Um, what do you anticipate would happen if 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 you really do strike gold? If you hit the jackpot? Look, obviously. That'll be a fantastic, uh, you know, fantastic result, and um, you know, I, I, I really hope for the sake of not only the company and our shareholders, but but for the country as well, that mm. that, that, that it does happen. 
you know, anything can happen. I think probably, um, you know, being a single asset focused company at the moment, um, there will be some eyes cast over it if it, mm. if it does come in. I think something of that size becomes pretty strategic yeah. uh, as, as from, from an M&A point of view. You know, but we'll cross that bridge we'll when it comes. <laughs> we'll wait for you to drill the well first, <laughs> yeah. shall we? Uh, Scott, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining me. Paul, thanks for having me. Scott McMillan is the Managing Director of Invictus Energy, a gas explorer, hopefully soon to be producer in a captive market in Southern Africa. Invictus is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the ticker IVZ. Energy News is Australasia's most in-depth and comprehensive news service for oil and gas, hydrogen and new energy industries. You can find breaking stories on policy, research, technology, law and the latest on oil and gas exploration and production at energynewsbulletin.net. This podcast was produced by Aspermont Media, news for industry.